Hello, friends. This is Alan Kirshner from Eschatos Ministries. The impact of Bible Prophecy Daily has exceeded our expectations, with regular listeners downloading all over the world. If you are finding value in these podcasts as they help you prepare for our Lord's return, would you consider giving to Eschatos Ministries? Simply click the support button in the corner of the podcast website at BibleProphecyDaily.com. Your support will help us maintain the delivery of this daily one-of-a-kind podcast. Thank you. You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. All right, the topic of my uh, talk here is the vital distinction between the Great Tribulation and God's eschatological wrath. And from those who are familiar with the pre-wrath or you're becoming familiar with the pre-wrath, either way, you have to understand this biblical distinction. Uh, Because if you get this wrong, when you study Bible prophecy, you have to understand that the... The Great Tribulation and and the Day of the Lord's Wrath, these are two separate events. And I think if you get this wrong, you're going to get a lot of these other issues wrong uh, related to the the second coming or the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. And why is is this important to recognize this distinction? I think there's two reasons. And I'm going to give you one reason uh, right now. And the second reason I'm going to give you at the end and this first reason, because we, we have to understand, this is not about head knowledge. We're all here, not because we want to understand, but because we want to understand God's will of when these events be, uh, occur, what do we do? And we, uh, we all recognize we're living in sober and interesting times, and it's only going to get more sober as the days become nearer to, uh, to Christ's return. So this, this first reason... Uh, it is foundational to interpret correctly the prophetic events surrounding Jesus' return. And think of this, the logic here. Remember I mentioned Matthew 24, 25. Jesus says, remember I have told you these scenes ahead of time. This is in the context of the Antichrist Great Tribulation who, that Jesus says is going to be the worst time for believers. And so since Jesus warns that to understand these events correctly, it follows that there are there's spiritual implications for the correct frame, framework. And so there's, there's interpreters out there, not just interpreters, but sadly, I think there's a lot of pastors out there who are saying that it doesn't matter, or you don't know. Trust me, I have heard of every slogan in the book. Any reason not to uh, study God's word or uh, warn your flock, their flock, of the coming persecution. But all those slogans are contradicted by Jesus' statement, remember I have told you these things ahead of time. These things are the events and their sequence because Jesus uses explicit sequential language. 
So to understand how all these events unfold, not just what is going to happen, but how they're going to unfold. In fact, the very beginning of the first two verses in Revelation talk about, you know, John, uh, there's a revelation of Jesus Christ to show what is, a, what is going to happen. So it's not, it's, it's the, the, the language there being used is in the semantic domain of time. Historical events in time. I, I emphasize that because, again, a lot of pastors, they, they'll preach the revelation and it's all kind of more spiritual platitudes. But that contradicts the very purpose why revelation was, was written or shown to John to understand what is about to happen. That's not immaterial language. That is physical, concrete language. So the first reason here is that to understand this distinction, you have to understand this distinction to get these events surrounding the, the second coming of Christ to, uh, correctly. Otherwise, because if you don't have good eschatology, then the implications are, I mean, there, there, there's ramifications. I'll give, you, I'll give you a good example of some of the ramifications. Some people will say, well, you know, this doesn't really affect salvation. Yeah, it does. Because the most explicit passage in the Bible on hell is found in Revelation chapter 13. And it's directly in the context of do not take the mark or worship his image. Why? It says the consequences. It says it's, this, is, this, is, uh, this is for the, uh, the endurance of God's people. Because if you take the mark, it says that you will you will have eternal torment. Those who take the mark, it's not, well, there's exceptions. There's no exception clauses in Revelation 13. So you will experience eternal torment if you take the mark of the beast or worship his image. Now, the last time I checked, eternal, your soul's eternal torment is in the context of salvation. So don't let anybody tell you that eschatology doesn't matter. It does matter, and it can matter to one's soul. Because if you've been taught all of your life where you're going to escape in beds of ease before the Antichrist emerges, you're never going to face that test of taking the mark of the beast. Well, what's the, what's the implication of that, or what's the consequence of that? The consequence of that is if that is wrong, and you find yourself on earth and you're faced with taking the mark because this is if you don't take the mark, you're going to die. You're going to have your head cut off. All of a sudden, you're thinking, wait, wait a minute, I've missed the rapture. This must be God's judgment on me. And all of a sudden, you are vulnerable to the Antichrist or Satan's schemes. So this has implications. So this distinction between the the, great, the Antichrist, Great Tribulation, and the Day of the Lord's Wrath, I'm going to give you um, four models. Four different views or models, I like to call them, how they have understood the relationship between the two. So pre-trib, pre-trib identifies the two events as one period. So they don't make a distinction between the Great Tribulation and God's wrath. There's always exceptions. Please understand. There's always, whenever you have more than one Bible prophecy interpreter, you're always going to have 
uh, more than one interpretation. But for, for the most part, the pre-trib model says that the Great Tribulation, that is God's wrath. In fact, they would say that this future seven-year period that we call Daniel's 70th week, this future seven-year period, is, it's all of the tribulation period. That's what they would call it. That's all of God's wrath. So they, they, were, they would say that the, the tribulation, God's wrath, day of the Lord, eschatological, God's wrath, th- those are all interchangeable terms. That's one model. Another model is the, is the mid-trib. And again, the mid-trib identifies the two events as one period. Now, mid-trib does, a little, does some things different from, from, from pre-trib. They would identify the Great Tribulation uh, as the Great uh, as the Day of the Lord, but they would they would also see, they would see that the, the they would limit the Day of the Lord's wrath uh, during the second half of the seven-year period, not just the entire seven-year period. But they still understand that, well. For the, the first half for them is not God's wrath. Um, again, there's always exceptions, but they would see that the God's wrath and Great Tribulation again is these are interchangeable terms. They would just limit it to the second half. Another model is the post-trib. Post-trib also identifies the two events as one period. There are exceptions. And in fact, I think there's more exceptions in the post-trib framework. Uh, but in fact, in, in here I have, they have the, uh, there's some post-tribs who would say the day of the Lord, God's wrath is like one day. They would say the, the great tribulation against the church, Israel, that's, three and a half years, that's the second half, and then in one day, the day of the Lord follows after it for one single day. Uh, but a lot of other post-tribs say, no, it's, it's just the Great Tribulation, and the, uh, the, the, the Great Tribulation is, they would say, uh, some would, again, they would identify the two terms as interchangeable. Some say it's uh, two events, but happening at the same time. Nevertheless, it, they still share this model of the great tribulation, God's wrath occurring basically at the same time. Now, pre-wrath, on the other hand, distinguishes itself from this, these other models as it identifies the great tribulation, Antichrist's great tribulation, and the day of the Lord's wrath as two periods. And not just two periods, but... The great tribulation by nature and timing. So the great tribulation, this is Satan's wrath against the church uh, and against Israel. And not just in nature, but timing. We would say, the pre-wrath view says that the the, uh, day of the Lord's wrath follows immediately after the great tribulation. In fact, we're going to see that in our first passage in Matthew 24. So, so the, the, the Great Tribulation and the Day of the Lord's Wrath, these are distinguished. And sometimes when, I, when I'm asked to give an interview on the radio, I know I have like maybe five minutes or 15 minutes at the most. And so it's like, okay, how do I do my elevator speech on the pre-wrath in just a few minutes between commercials and between the host sometimes dominating the, the conversation? Uh, so I immediately begin with, saying, look, the Bible, doesn't te- the Bible teaches that the, uh, that the Great Tribulation, the, the Great Tribulation is the period of Antichrist. His object of wrath is not the world. The world is going to love this guy. They're going to worship the Antichrist. The object of, of wrath of, of Satan or Antichrist is going to be the church and Israel. 
But that's not the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord's wrath is not against the people of God, it's against the wicked. These are two different events. In fact, I, I, over the last 30 years, I've I started teaching pre-wrath uh, immediately when I became familiar with it back in 1993, 90, 1994. And over the decades, I think uh, most people who've come out of the pre-tribulational viewpoint into the pre-wrath said, it was when I learned that the great tribulation is cut short with the day of the Lord's wrath, that's when the light bulb went on. Because then they were able to make sense of these, all these other events. It just didn't make sense having God's wrath occurring at the same time as during the Antichrist wrath. Because we understand that during the day of the Lord, it is the, the Lord, Isaiah says, it is the Lord alone who will be exalted. Well, how can the Lord be alone be exalted during the day of the Lord when it says that Antichrist, the beast, is going to be exalted? That makes no sense. Uh, but I want to share a few passages here because some, sometimes uh, one of the objections is, well, you, you pre-rathers, you, all, you, know, you have that one verse in Matthew 24, that one passage in Matthew 24 that says that the great, tribula or the, yeah, the great tribulation is, is cut short with the return of Christ, uh, and, and that's about it. Well, first of all, God only has to say it once. And, and second of all, it's a very explicit pass passage. You can't get around it. I, I don't believe you can get around it. Uh, but there are numerous other passages that teach this idea of this unequal period of persecution just before God's wrath is unleashed when Jesus returns. And we're going to look at some of those passages. But I do want to look at the first one here. That is in Matthew 24, verses 9 through 31. If you have your Bibles, you can, you can turn there. If you don't, then I'll, you can just hear me uh, read from them. So I begin with Matthew 24, verse 9 through 31. Uh, it's, good th it's good exegetical practice to begin with the most explicit passage on a particular doctrine or, or topic. I don't believe in beginning with, with something obscure and then you, you filter these other passages through the obscure. No, you interpret the implicit in light of the explicit, not the other way around. So that's why we begin with Matthew 24, uh, verses 9 through 31. That's going to show here that first it's the great tribulation and then God's wrath. Okay, verse 9, and I, and I understand, I'm not going to be reading the entire, uh, all of the discourse, but Jesus talked about the beginning of the birth pains, and then in verse 9, he gets into talking about this uh, persecution. He says, Then they will hand you over to be persecuted and will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. So the, who are the you here? These aren't unbelieving Jews. Right? These, are, these are believers because Jesus is talking about Christians here. That's why he says, people will hate you because of, my, because of my name. Verse 10, then many will be led into sin and they will betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will appear and deceive many and because lawlessness will increase so much, the love of many will, will grow cold but the person who endures to the end will be saved and this gospel to the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole inhabited earth as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken about by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let me just stop right there. So, of course, Jesus is drawing from Matthew, uh, Daniel chapter 9 and a few other passages talking about the abomination of desolation. This is going to occur right at the midpoint. 
Even pre-tribulationists agree that the abomination desolation begins at this midpoint in which the sacrifices cease, Antichrist is revealed for who he is, and then what happens? He's, what, the, what are the consequences of this abomination? Uh, by the way, uh, he says, it's the abomination des desolation standing in the holy place. It's a personification. So there's this man of lawlessness, Antichrist figure is going to personify, he's a personification of what he's going to do, this desolation that's going to happen uh, in Israel in the holy place. Verse 16, then those in the Judea must, by the way, have, you, have we seen anything about God's wrath yet? No, there's nothing about God's wrath. This is all man's wrath, Satan's wrath. Uh, because if it is God's wrath, then, then, I, then I don't understand why God, God would have Christians hate other people or ha hate other Christians. So a city cannot be divided, right? That, that makes no sense. We, we understand this is man's depravity, Satan, uh, Satan's activity here. God's wrath is coming, though. Verse 16, Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one on the roof must not uh, come down to take anything out of his house, and the one in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Uh, woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing their babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in, in winter or on a Sabbath. Verse 21. For then, that is, from the point of the abomination and desolation that we know that occurs at the midpoint, from that point on, the great tribulation begin, begins. Because it says in verse 21, For then there will be great tribulation unlike anything that has happened from the beginning of the world until now, or ever will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no one would be saved or delivered. Now, I don't believe that's referring to, uh, I believe that's referring to God's people, not every single person. Some people, some pre-tribulationists have said, oh no, this is God's wrath because then it's saying that no one's going to survive. No, because look at the very, the, the very next verse. Why is it being cut short? Uh, in verse 22 it says, and if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. Why is it cut short? It's for the sake of the elect. Why? Because Satan wants to exterminate Christians and of, and of course, Jews. But in this context, it is talking about believers. Because the second person, plural, you, we know that in the previous context too, he's talking about those who are hated by my name. Those are Christians, whether Jews or Gentiles, they're Christians. So they're, it's cut short for the sake of the elect. In the verse 23, then if anyone says to you, look, here's a Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Remember, I have told you this ahead of time. There it is at verse 25, right? Remember, I have told you this ahead of time. Jesus is telling his disciples, who are the disciples? Who do they represent? They're, they're, they're the foundation of the church. church. Jesus is giving church instruction here. In the context of the last week, Jesus gave a lot of church instruction to the same audience, the Lord's Supper and, and many other uh, teachings, the Great Commission. All right, so then, if anyone says to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe him. For just like the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so the coming, parousia, <clears throat> of the Son of Man will be. 
Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And this proverb, by the way, indicates, uh, you can find this proverb in in, uh, other ancient cultures, uh, and it most likely indicates the idea of that moral corruption requires divine judgment. Because up to verse 28, what, has, what have we seen? Have we seen divine judgment yet? No. We've seen what's going to require divine judgment, and that is moral corruption. But then things are going to change now. We've, we've addressed the great tribulation. It's not God's wrath. Now we're going to address God's wrath. In verse 29, immediately, not 10 years later, not a month later, immediately after the tribulation of those days, what days? The days of great tribulation, referring back to uh, the immediate period. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man arriving on the, arriving on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet blast and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This is how the great tribulation is going to be cut short with Jesus coming back. I mean, it's, it's simple logic. Unequaled persecution, Jesus comes back, delivers his people. How does he deliver his people? Well, he will gather his elect from the four winds, from the one end of heaven to the other. Because if Jesus didn't come back, then Satan's intended goal would be accomplished to exterminate all Christians. But Jesus for the sake of the elect, he's going to save a remnant who are alive. Now, so I note here the, uh, uh, first, the great tribulation, then God's wrath. Not happening at the same time. All these other models, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, all, and all their varieties mess it all up. It, it, it's straightforward. The sequence is clear. Jesus intended us to understand the sequence. If you didn't, but in verse 29, it says, immediately after the suffering uh, of these days, or immediately after the tribulation of those days, just to get a little Greek geeky on you, uh, the suffering or the tribulation there is in the, uh, it's in the accusative case. In Greek, when that's an accusative case, the preposition for after, meta, has to be rendered as after. If tribulation there was, there was in the genitive case, then the, the meta preposition would be rendered as with. In other words, if, this was in the genitive, if tribulation was in the genitive case, then someone could make a case that it would, it would read like this. Uh, this is going to happen, the tribulation, uh, well, uh, this is, uh, Christ's return will happen at the same time, or the, 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 the God's wrath is going to happen with, or in other words, uh, concurrent with the Great Tribulation. But the Greek, Greek completely rules that out. And not just the Greek, but the term immediately. Because if, it was, if, the great, if God's wrath was happening at the, great, at the same time as the Great Tribulation, then why would, why would Jesus use the word after? I mean, I mean immediately. That makes no sense. But the Greek is crystal clear. There's no debate. By the way, I've never seen anybody object to this um, 
note that I, this grammatical note that I mentioned here. So it's very clear, immediately after the tribulation of those days, that's when God's wrath begins. And we also know, I'm not going to get too much into it, but we're all familiar with the, the illustration. Uh, Jesus follows up his didactic narrative teaching with parables. Say, so, okay, now you understand the narrative, you understand the sequence. Now I'm going to give you some illustrations. For example, just like in the days of Noah, people are going on with their everyday business, right? And then God's judgment happened. By the way, when it says that people were going on with their everyday business, during Noah's time, they were, the wicked was going on with their everyday p- business, but I'm sure Noah's family wasn't going on with their everyday business because they were, number one, they were probably being persecuted, laughed at, mocked. What are you talking about? What, what, what's this big boat? What's a boat? <laughs> number two is they're preparing spiritually for what God had in store for them. So maybe that's something we can take away for our own selves. So the parables themselves teach that great tribulation occurs first and then God's wrath. All right, let's uh, turn to uh, Luke 21. Matthew, Luke 21 is another parallel count and there's, for the synoptic, and there's a few points I want to highlight. Turn your attention to... um, uh, I'll start with verse 10. Bring up the slide there, Luke 21. Verse 10, Then he said to them, Nation will rise up in arms against nation, the kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you, handing you over to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors, because of my name, Christians here, not unbelieving Jews, uh, therefore be resolved not to rehearse ahead of time how to make your defense, for I will give you the words along with the wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will have some of you put to death. Quite sober. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, yet not a hair of your head will perish, but your endurance will gain your lives. We've just witnessed Hamas and what happened in, in Israel. And I, I believe what we saw here is a type or a precursor of a larger fulfillment. Uh, I find verses 20 through 24 at least uh, quite interesting because it's a type. Look at verse 20. It says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are inside the city must depart. Those who are out in the country must not enter it. Now verse 22 is interesting. Because these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing their babies in those days. For there will be great distress on the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away as captives among all nations. Do you 
hear a, a pattern here happening? There's a, a precursor pattern. And recently we saw, just in the last couple of, of weeks, a hatred toward Israel, a vengeance against Israel. And what did they do? They killed people by the sword and they led away as captives among the nations. I don't believe that this is the actual fulfillment, and I don't even think this is a fulfillment of what happened in AD 70. I believe this is still a fulfillment in the context of the future seven-year period. But this allows you to kind of see that in the future, it's not going to be unprecedented. It's playing out right now in a, a, a pattern. Uh, now, some people will say, well, in verse 22, it says that, you know, these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that has happened. And then it mentions in, says, uh, in verse 23, it says, for there will be great distress on, on the earth and wrath against the people. Uh, Pre-tribulationists have often pointed to this and say, well, look, wrath against this people. This is God's wrath. This is not uh, anything but God's wrath. No, this is actually the vengeance here. This is not God's vengeance against his own people. This is not... And don't get me wrong, I understand that God, for example, in the Old Testament, he has used nations, Gentile nations, to judge Israel. No question about that. And of course, he's turned around and then judged those nations who judged Israel. But I don't think that's happening here. Um, and I'll give you a reason why. This is directly in the context of the midpoint. The wrath of, this is Satan's wrath, Antichrist's wrath against his people. Where do we find, in the same context of the midpoint, where do we find this Noted, or mentioned again, and that would be Revelation 12.12. 12. I'll, I'll just read that <clears throat> here quickly. Revelation 12.12, 12, again, this is in the context of where there's a war in heaven and Satan is thrown down to earth. And I believe this is at the midpoint of the 17th of Daniel in which then Michael the Restrainer stops his restraining ministry and Satan has, uh, in God's sovereignty, Satan is allowed to persecute um, the people of God. In fact, I'll just mention this here. Uh, Satan, the one who accuses him day and night before God, has been thrown down. But they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore, you heavens rejoice in all who reside in them, but woe to the earth and the sea. Because the devil has come down to you, he is filled with great wrath. For he knows that he only has a little time. He only knows that he has a little time because I, I believe that he, think, he, he understands that God is eventually going to cut short that period of great tribulation. So Luke 21, once again, you have this idea of the uh, uh, Satan's wrath, then God's wrath, because if you... Uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to get into it, but again, in verse 25, it talks about the signs and the sun and the moon and stars, and then you have people will, well, maybe I will mention this one, people will be fainting, uh, or I'm sorry, and, the earth, and on the earth nations will be in distress, anxious over the roaring of the sea and the surging waves. Uh, the Greek, Greek word behind that, by the way, is, is uh, for uh, a common word for earthquake. So wait a minute, I thought earthquakes are in, on the land. What causes tsunamis? Earthquakes. And nations don't, they don't fret over six foot waves, do they? 
I think this is tsunami language here. Because when the celestial disturbances that Revelation talks about and Matthew talks about, where there's a terrestrial element to it, not just celestial disturbances, but terrestrial. And there's going to be earthquakes and tsunamis, worldwide tsunamis happening. That's why the world's going to be fainting. Yeah, people will be fainting from the fear and from the expectation of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then the, they will see the Son of Man arriving in a cloud because the celestial disturbances, they are harbinger of God's wrath. They signal that God's wrath is about to happen. But he says, has rapture happened yet? No. We know it hasn't because verse 28 says, but when these things begin to happen, stand up and raise your head because your redemption is drawing near. During the celestial disturbances, the rapture will be imminent, but not before it, not before the great tribulation, only when the celestial disturbances happen. So there's two polar responses to God coming. The world is going to be fretting over what is about to happen, and then the other polar response is believers are told to have peace and look up for your redemption draws near because you're, we're, we're not going to be experiencing God's wrath. Yeah, turn to Luke 17, 22. I just want to note here, I'm not going to read all of this, but this is, again, the, this idea of the days of Lot. People were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. Nothing wrong with that, right? It's just based, the point here is people are going just on with their everyday business. And then sudden destruction. And... And then verse 37, just skip down here. Yeah, then the disciples said to him, where, Lord, he replied to them, where the, the dead body is, there the vultures will gather. Uh, this idea of, again, there's this period before God's wrath happens. And in fact, just to jump back to verse 25, it says, but first, talk, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, uh, generation. But just as it was in the days of Noah, so too will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking. Now, someone may look at that, verse 17, or chapter 17, and say, well, where, where's the persecution here? I just see God's wrath. Well, if you turn to chapter 18, chapter 18, chapter breaks uh, were created by a guy named Stephen Langton, an early 13th century archbishop of Canterbury. He's the one that put the chapter breaks in the Bible. Uh, so they're not inspired, of course, and unfortunately, they really break up the cohesion of passages. So I give you permission, you can take a, a sharpie and just, you know, X out, maybe X out all of your chapter breaks in your Bible. Uh, but the narrative continues because Jesus talks about what's going to happen at his return and then he brings in this parable to explain something. And this parable has to be understood in conjunction with, uh, with the Lord's return. In chapter eight, 18, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus told them a parable to show them they should always pray and not lose heart. Not lose heart. Why would you lose heart? Things are great, right? Not when you're being persecuted. Not when, when your friends and your family are being put to death. That's when you lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected people. There was also a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, We're all going to be widows, or this widow. Give me justice against my adversary. During the Great Tribulation, we are this widow. For a while he refused, but later on he said to himself, though I neither fear God 
uh, nor have regard for people, yet because this widow keeps on bothering me, I will give her justice, or in the end she will wear me out by her unending pleas. And the Lord said, listen to what the unrighteous judge says. Won't God give justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long to help them? We don't say that in America right now. Do, we don't make the, this is not our cry in America right now. It will be when, when persecution comes to America. And I'm sure this is a, a, a prayer in other parts of the, of the world. Verse 7, Won't God give justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long to help them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, this is how we know that this is connected to the previous passage, will he find faith on earth? Many will apostatize during the Great Tribulation. They will not persevere. See, our prayer should be, when the persecution comes, our prayer should not be, God, stop the persecution. Even though this is part of the prayer here, ultimately the larger prayer is, Lord, if it is your will that I am persecuted, my prayer is, please, give me faith to persevere. Because if we don't have faith to persevere, then when Jesus comes back, he won't find faith in you. And I believe very few people will have this faith. I believe we're going to see a mass apostasy of churches, of people, Christians who we thought were Christians. And they're going to apostatize, maybe even on the first day of the Great Tribulation. It's just because we're not prepared, we're not even spiritually prepared. And we don't even understand what Jesus is teaching here because we've been told it doesn't matter. You know, just know that Jesus is returning. Actually, Jesus doesn't teach that. Jesus, under, uh, Jesus teaches not the fact that he is returning, but how he is returning. If Jesus just wanted to focus on, on the fact that he is returning, then why did Jesus give us all this information? And why did Jesus warn us, remember, I have told you this ahead of time. All right, moving on. Okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, 13 through 5 through 11. So I think we've covered like three or four passages already that show, that support the pre-wrath model. Persecution first, then God's wrath. I'm sure we're all familiar with this passage, the, the classic rapture passage, also talking about the resurrection. And in verse 13, it says, Now we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep or those who have died, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so also we believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep as Christians. For we tell you this by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the, up to the coming, parousia of the Lord, that is the second coming, will surely not go ahead of those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a shout of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That we who are alive, who are left, will be suddenly caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And then you have a Sharpie X'd out chapter 5 there. All right? It's breaking up the cohesion between, uh, because we're talking about the parousia, that when Jesus returns, there's divine purposes. 
There's the rapture, we just talked about, the resurrection, and then there's God's wrath. So why, why, why do we have a break here? There's, there's no break. But in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now on the topic of the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need for anything to be written to you. That's because Paul already explained these matters to him, and he's trying to get to the main point here. Not because we're not supposed to know these under, uh, understand these matters. In verse 2, For you know quite well uh, that the day of the Lord will come in the same way as a thief in the night, now, when they are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction comes upon them. That is the world. It's not going to come suddenly on the church because we understand that God's wrath is going to cut short the great tribulation. It's going to come suddenly on the wicked. Like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will surely not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness for the day to overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of the, of the light and sons of the day. And then it goes on uh, talking about the character of believers and unbelievers. Now, we just talked about when, when Jesus returns, you get the rapture, resurrection, day of the Lord. But someone may object and say, and many have, many pre-tribulationists ha- have object- objected and say, well, where's the great tribulation? Where's the persecution here? And I say, well, it's right here. It's in, right in verse 15. For we tell you this by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the parousia, there's going to be a remnant alive when Jesus returns. Now, the Greek word behind those who are alive and are left, it's actually, it's a, it's a Greek term it's called paralipomenoi. Say that ten times real fast. Paralipomenoi. And it's only mentioned two times in the New Testament. Here and verse 17. And it means survival. In fact, when you look at other usages like in the Septuagint and outside of the, the Bible in the Greek literature, it indicates persecution and it in, indicates survival. I, I'm sorry, not survive, not survive. It indicates, um, well, survival. Survival where other people have died. You can look at all these other instances out there. It's a term that indicates, see, Paul didn't just, he could have just grabbed a, a common Greek word to refer to those who are alive. There's, there's, there's a cluster of, of Greek terms that are just kind of generic terms like being alive but he chose specifically this Greek term, perlopanemoi, to indicate that it's not just those who are going to be, oh, you know, alive up to the second coming. No, he chose this because it's those who are alive because they survived up to the second coming, where other people have died and even been martyred. So Paul here, and again, he's, I mean, all the language here, he's drawn from the Olive Discourse. He understands Jesus' teaching. This is directly from the Olive Discourse, his teaching. So, yeah, another passage, another passage showing that persecution, this great tribulation period, precedes the day of the Lord's wrath. 
Okay, next, Second uh, uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3 through 10. I'm going to go a little quicker here, but this passage opens up with um, Paul is reassuring the Thessalonians that Jesus has not returned. And one of the ways he reassures the Thessalonians is saying, Number one, he says that, no, when Jesus returns, he's coming back in fiery, wrathful wrath. And he notes here, he says in verse 5, this is evidence of God's righteous judgment to make you worthy of the kingdom of God, for which, in fact, you are suffering. For it is right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, of course, he's, he's talking about those Thessalonians, but he understands, Paul understands, that this is going to happen directly before Jesus returns. Because Paul didn't know if Jesus would return during his generation. Jesus could have returned in his generation. Not because it was imminent, but because these pro- pro- uh, prophetic events could have unfolded during his time. So he, in verse 7, he says, To you who are being afflicted, to give you rest to give you rest together when us, with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, with flaming fire, he will mete out punishment on those who do not know God. So once again, here's the idea found right here. Given rest from what? Persecution. And he continues in chapter 2. He gives another reason He's telling the Thessalonians why they can know that <clears throat> the return of the Lord has not happened yet. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now regarding uh, the arrival, or the, the coming, the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily shaken from your composure or disturbed by any kind of spirit or, me- or message or letter allegedly from us to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. So the, uh, the Thessalonians, they're, 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 they're fretting over this persecution and they, they think that God's wrath has already happened or, it's, it, it, or it is happening. And Paul is saying, no, it has not happened. In fact, you will know that, you know that it hasn't happened is because this apostasy and the revelation of the, of the man of lawlessness has not been revealed yet. In fact, Paul uses a term, he says, uh, the term first, protos, protos, that is the uh, Antichrist protos first and then judgment. That's often missed uh, by those who believe that uh, the Antichrist has to, uh, the Antichrist comes uh, after the rapture rather than before. So, but anyway, uh, uh, basically 2 Thessalonians, Paul is reassuring the Thessalonians that the day of the Lord's wrath hasn't come yet. There's a great persecution coming and then when Jesus returns, then the Antichrist uh, will be, uh, or uh, the Antichrist is going to be revealed first, and then the Lord will come and meet out his uh, his wrath. In fact, the if you look at the let's see here the okay Second Thessalonians chapter two one through four, I have another protos here, but I want you to uh, turn your attention to verse eight, chapter two verse eight. It says, and then the lawless one, that is the Antichrist, will be revealed. Okay, he's revealed now. Right? He's on earth, he's revealed, whom the Lord will destroy by the breath of his mouth and wipe out by the manifestation of his arrival. Wait, how can that happen if the Antichrist is revealed after? 
That makes no sense. The Antichrist has to be revealed first before he's destroyed. So in one verse, Paul is teaching that the Antichrist is going to be revealed first and then the Lord will come and eventually undermine his kingdom and and, and destroy him. All right, let me move on to the, the next one. I'll just mention this one, Revelation 6, 8. We don't have to turn there, but when you look at Revelation chapter 6 through 8, there's a progression of the seals. And th- this is my little saying here I've, I've had over the years, and I think it's a little alliteration here to help you to remember. And I encourage you to go back and read Revelation chapters 6 through 8, because when you look at the first four seals, what they do is they prove the guilty for God's wrath. Sort of like when we look at Matthew 24, Matthew 24 up to verse 28, what do you have? You have all man's wrath. You have Satan's wrath. And what they're doing is, is there's, it's called a debenture, a certificate of debenture. It's, it's sort of like the debt. They're, they're earning their debt. They're earning their wrath. And so the first four seals is, this is Satan's wrath slash man's wrath, uh, the guilty. They're, they're building up their guilt for when God's wrath is meted out. And the fifth seal promises God's wrath because the, the fifth seal is these martyrs. They've been martyred. That's how we know it's not God's wrath because God says we're exempt from God's wrath. Christians are exempt from God's wrath. Well, if the fifth seal is God's wrath, then, then that means that Christians have been suffering God's wrath. That makes no sense. In fact, they're, they're, they have souls. They're under the altar in heaven. They're, they're crowned out to God. God, when are you going to avenge? When are you going to avenge your name and, and their blood? And the answer given to them is, wait a little bit longer. It's coming. And they're given white robes. They're not wearing white robes just yet. They're given white robes. And so there's a promise. The fifth seal promises, hey, God's wrath is coming. And then in Revelation 7, between, before the seventh seal is opened, there's a conspicuous break in the narrative you have two groups who are protected from God's wrath that is about to happen. This great multitude, they appear in heaven, they have bodies, hands, they're, pra- they're praising God, they palm bra- they're, they're praising God. What are they praising God for? They're praising God for their salvation, their, 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 the final salvation of their, of their resurrection. And, they, and, and they actually, it actually says they came out of the great tribulation. And, so they, and then you have 144,000, 12,000, uh, 12, 12, uh, these, uh, these groups of 12,000 uh, who are protected from God's wrath. It's a remnant of Israel, a faithful remnant. And again, why are they being protected? They're protected on earth, I believe. And so you have a, a group protected in heaven, on earth. Where they're protected on earth, they're given a seal, I believe, because when God's wrath begins with the trumpet judgments, they're protected. Sort of like what happened in uh, the the days in, in Egypt. And so you have the, the, the wicked, they have accumulated their guilt. God promises that God's wrath is coming. Oh, the sixth seal, I mentioned the sixth seal, that's the celestial disturbance event. It's portending that God's wrath is coming because people are fleeing, you know, they're fleeing, they want, you know, they're fleeing to the caves and so forth because they know God's wrath is coming. And then you have two groups of people protected from, gra- from God's wrath. And then finally, the seventh seal is opened. It's broken. 
All seven seals are now broken and the scroll is opened and now God's wrath is pronounced. It's pronounced on, 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 uh, to the whole world. And so this, this progression here, once again, is consistent. It's consistent with all the other teachings in the Bible supporting the pre view that, first of all, you have this unprecedented persecution against God's people and then God's wrath. All right, let me just uh, conclude here with Revelation 14. Uh, 9 through 20, martyrdom and then divine judgment. So again, the pre-wrath view doesn't have just one or two passages that support its view. It's, I think it's very consistent across scripture. Okay, there's this third angel, a third angel uh, followed the first two, declaring in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and takes the mark of his forehead on his forehead or on his hand, that person will dr- also drink of the wine of God's, wrath, of God's anger that has been mixed, undiluted in the cup of wrath and he will be tortured with fire and sulfur in the front of the holy angels and in front of the lamb and the, and the smoke from the torture will go up forever and ever and those who worship the beast and his image will have no rest day or night along with anyone who receives the mark and his name. This is not God's wrath. God's wrath is not happening at this point. And what does it say? It says, this requires the steadfast endurance of the saints, those who obey God's commandments and hold to their faith in Jesus. It's the endurance. God, give me faith to persevere. Then I heard a voice from heaven say this, blessed are the dead, those who die in the Lord from this moment on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they can rest from their hard work because their deeds will follow them. Then... Then I looked, and a white cloud appeared, and seated on a cloud was one like a son of man. Sound familiar? Very consistent. This is Jesus returning for deliverance and judgment. Here's the deliverance. He had a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And Then another angel came out out of the temple, shouting in a loud voice to the one seated on the cloud, Use your sickle and start to reap, because the time to reap has come since the earth's harvest is ripe. So the one seated on the cloud, swung this, his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. I believe, and for other reasons too, that, that this, this is uh, the rapture of God's people here. And then immediately after rapture, again, consistent with Paul and the Olive Discourse, we should, in the next statement, find a statement about God's wrath. And sure enough, in verse 17, then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. This is a different harvest. And he too had a sharp sickle. Another angel in charge of the fire, came from the altar and and called in a loud voice to the angel who had the sharp sickle, use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes of the vine of the earth because its grapes are now ripe. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth and tossed them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And of course, that's going to culminate eventually in in the battle of Armageddon, you can read there in verse 20. So what we've done here, we, we've looked at these, these major prophetic passages. We've seen the consistency. All I've done is I've just compared scripture with scripture. I don't think I've strained scripture to try to you know, fit some theological system you know, that was created maybe in the early 1800s or throughout at some point in church history. I've just compared scripture with scripture and I haven't taken obscure little Verses here or there. I've taken the major biblical prophecy passages and shown a consistency. We, and, and we should see a consistency because I don't believe God contradicts himself. 
So the second reason I mentioned, I'll just conclude here. The second reason why understanding this biblical distinction is that so you do not fret during the Antichrist Great Tribulation and become vulnerable to the Antichrist. I alluded to this at, at the beginning, but I'll note here, this is why Bible prophecy should be taught in every single church. And so when you hear certain platitudes or slogans to deflate what you believe is important, how do you counter that? You cite Jesus. Remember, I have told you this ahead of time. Well, now, wait a minute. Are you telling me that Jesus is a disingenuous prophet? Are you telling me that it doesn't matter, but then Jesus says, why all the severe, severe warnings? I guess Jesus is a disingenuous prophet to a lot of religious leaders out there. No, it's because Jesus understands. Not just understands, because Jesus loves you and he wants you to persevere in faith during the great tribulation. Because he doesn't want you to commit the Thessalonian error. Where the Thessalonians believed that when that persecution came on them, they thought that was God's wrath. And there were other, by the way, there were other people telling them that that was God's wrath. But yet, once again, we have a huge, most Christians in the pre-tribulational camp believe that the Antichrist persecution is God's wrath. This is why it's important, because we're, when, the, when the great tribulation comes, we have to do two things. Number one, we have to live righteously and holy, right? Ourselves, right? And number two is we need to edify the people around us. But if you think that the, you're, the persecution from the Antichrist, like, wait a minute, I, 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 thought, I was told I'm not supposed to be here for the mark. You're, gonna be, you're not going to be able to think about living holy and righteous. You're not gonna, and certainly you're not going to be edifying the people around you. Why? Because you're going to be fretting about your own faith, just like the Thessalonians. So this is why it is important. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 